Um, just want to remind you something that we've been talking about here at Remy for a while. I hadn't said in a while. Um, so on Sunday mornings, we want you to think about four different E's. Uh, and as you're thinking about these four E's, this should define the way you come to Sunday morning uh, every single time. First, eager, that you are uh, so eager, you cannot wait to hear from God's Word, and you cannot wait to be with your church family. So you're eager to be here every single Sunday. The next one is expectant, that every time you come, you're expecting that God's going to do something amazing in your life today, today. Next is that you're early, um, that you uh, come to church on time early, that you, uh, you don't come at 935 like you have now. You're, you're here early. That's great. Um, and that you would be here on time. So eager, expectant, early. And then last one, maybe the most important, Hebrews 1025 important, every Sunday, that you know that every Sunday is the uh, day for you to be with your church family. Not every other Sunday or accidentally uh, part-time church attenders, but every Sunday you're here and your heart breaks if you can't be. If you have to go out of town on Friday, you come back on Saturday so that you can be with your church family on Sunday. I have to do that, so everybody else should. Um, I'm just kidding. I know there's times you can't. Uh, on uh, on uh, the tables outside, want to make sure if you hadn't gotten one of these, you get one of these. This is a James devotional uh, that we wrote for you as we're going through the book of James. We're in week five-ish, I think, and so uh, there have there are about five more weeks that you can keep going through this. So I want to make sure you grab one of these um, and and read it as we've been going through this book of James. Uh, announcements for you first is that we have a members meeting tonight. So uh, please come. It'll be at 6 p.m. right here in this room. We'll talk about budgets. Um, we'll also have a presentation from Sean on uh, security. So we want to make sure you hear that, among some other things. So come tonight at 6 p.m. Uh, for the members meeting. If you're not a member, you can still come. That's fine. But if you are, we definitely want you here. Uh, and if you want to go ahead and grab one of those budgets, you'll see them out on the info table. They're one page. They look like this. Uh, if you lose paper, then you can go to remedychurch.org slash budget, and it'll be there. Um, so uh, the other thing is this. Um, as we've been trying to figure out announcement, because there's, no, there's not a good place to put announcements. Right now, I'm not preaching because I'm having to do announcements, and that bugs me. And so there's no good place to put announcements and services. But we've also noticed that the less we do announcements and services, the more everybody's like, I don't know what's going on. Um, and so we want to train you to not be used to announcements on services, uh, to know what's going on. So you should, from now on, Always on these TVs between services, the scrolling announcements, you should just make sure you look up at those announcements between services and look for that, as well as social media stuff. And if you don't do social media, we're going to put like an old school bulletin board out here on the wall uh, near the bathrooms. So train yourself from now on to uh, look at the bulletin board, social media, and the scrolling announcements. Um, I, I don't do social either, either, either so I'm, I'm, the bulletin board's going to be all about me. That's, that's, my, that's my deal. But we want to make sure that you're not getting used to uh, announcements on Sunday mornings. The only thing that we'll do on Sunday morning is one huge thing that, that covers everybody, like members meeting. So watch for scrolling announcements from now on. Um, Every week we pray for something local or international, and today we're going to pray for an unreached people group. You can see them up here on there, the Kermi in India. You can see there's 18 million. They're all Hindu, uh, and these 18 million, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to have to move this because I'm going to die on that cord. Thank you. All right, um, the uh, 18 million are there. You can see it's .01 are reached, so a vast number of people are not reached, and uh, the reason why we put people in front of you that you've never seen before, maybe not, don't know, is just to remind you that we're, we're called to be on mission, not just with the people around us, but all over the world. And so um, 
ever since we started, we've been putting up unreached people groups. And so we want to remind you again uh, about unreached people groups. So you can see the, where they are, and mostly in northern India, um, some 18, almost 19 million of them unreached. And so we're going to pray for them, and then we're going to pray for our time, and then we'll jump into James chapter 2. James chapter 2. So uh, we'll be at verse 14. But let's pray together. Lord, thank you so much for our time together. I pray that you would uh, be with us now as we study your word and give us eyes to see and ears to hear. Um, And Holy Spirit, fill us so that we will hear from you and understand your word. And God, I pray for myself that you would help me be clear and uh, understandable. But more than anything, God, that you would use your word to feed the souls of your people and that our affections would be stirred for our Lord Jesus. Um, We pray for the Kermi in uh, India, uh, 18 million, close to 19 million people that don't know you. It's an amazing thought that there's that many people that are living in this one particular people group out of so many in one country that are just absolutely lost without you, that have never even heard about Jesus or the gospel. So Lord, we pray that you would send people there to call them to yourself and that they would become believers in Christ. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. At Remedy, uh, if you will, we uh, read and stand and read the, the book of uh, the Bible together. So if you can, stand with me. We'll start at James chapter 2, starting at verse 14. I'm going to read down through 26. Down through 26, starting at verse 14. What good is it, my brothers, if someone says he has faith but does not have works? Can that faith save him? If a brother or sister is poorly clothed and lacking in daily food, and one of you says to him, Go in peace, be warmed and filled, without giving him things that he needs for the body, what good is that? So also, faith by itself, if it does not have works, is dead. But someone will say, you have faith and I have works. Show me your faith apart from your works, and I will show you my faith by my works. You believe that God is one, you do well. Even the demons believe and shudder. Do you want me to... Do you want to be shown, you foolish person, that faith apart from works is useless? Was it not Abraham, our father, justified by works when he offered up his son Isaac upon the altar? You see that faith was active along with his works, and faith was complete by his works. And the scripture was fulfilled that says, Abraham believed God, and it was counted to him as righteousness. And he was called a friend of God. You see that a person is justified by works and not by faith alone. In the same way... Was not also Rahab the prostitute justified by works when she received the messengers and sent them out another way? For as the the body apart from spiritual is dead, so also faith apart from works is dead. It's the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. You can have a seat. So I want to welcome you to the most controversial text in the book of James. Um, If you caught it, uh, verse 24 is quite controversial. Uh, There was a lot and a lot, a lot of debate over this, and we will get to it as we come to it. So we started at 14, so I'm going to go through. When we get to 24, we'll unpack that and look at the difference between James and Paul. But the main idea of this text is what does real, genuine faith look like? What does real, genuine faith look like? And in the text, uh, James is going to offer us three counterfeit faiths or three vain faiths, things that are not faith where people think they have faith. And thereby implicitly, we see what real faith is. And we'll come to that at the end. But why should we know this? Why is this important for us to know that it's possible to have a false faith, vain faith, counterfeit faith? Well, here's why. Um, 
Sam Alberry says, here is genuinely frightening truth that you should, that should give you and me, and he's a pastor, so every Christian in the world should give us all a pause whenever we read this. Here's why. It is possible to claim and to believe you possess genuine saving faith when in fact you do not. It is possible, in other words, to believe you have things sorted out with God, as it were, that you will not face his judgment and that there is hope for you beyond the grave and yet remain under the judgment of God. It is possible, in short, unknowingly to possess counterfeit faith. And so all of us uh, need to make sure we don't have a false faith, a vain faith, a counterfeit faith, but instead we have real faith. So let's make sure we understand the word faith. In Greek, this word is pistis, uh, and it means a conviction of truth. So when you see faith, it's the same word as belief. There's no two words in Greek, faith and belief. There's just the, na- the, the noun form, pistis, and the verb form, to believe, I believe. And so you could just even say, I faith, or he faiths, or she faiths, whenever you're conjugating it out. Uh, the, we have belief and faith, but in the Greek, it's just the same word. Uh, and it means this, uh, a conviction of truth of anything in like belief. In the New Testament, a conviction or belief respecting man's relationship to God and divine things generally uh, with the included area, idea of trust and holy fervor born in faith and joined with it. So uh, this is what faith means. It means more than just uh, belief as in something that exists. It's trust. So when we say faith instead of belief, it helps us understand that it's implicit that we're meaning uh, a deep trust as well. I'm going to read from 1 Corinthians 15 uh, as kind of a, a starter verse to help us see that even Paul believes that we can have a faith that isn't real. He's going to use the term vain. So 1 Corinthians 15, this is verse 1 through 4, he said, or 1 and 2. So now I would remind you, brothers, of the gospel I preached to you in which you received in which you stand, and by which you are being saved, if you hold fast to the word I preached. And then it says this, unless you believed, same word, pistis, so unless you had faith in vain. So there's a way, of course. And James is going to even give us three examples of what vain faith or counterfeit faith looks like. So when we're looking at here, uh, we're going to see, we're going to define faith uh, here as we look at starting at verse 14. So defining faith, the first one we'll see is going to be in verses 14 through 17. Look at it. What is, what good is it, my brothers, if someone says he has faith but does not have works? Can that faith save him? So he's making a distinguish, distinguisher here between people who says he has faith and people who say they have faith but they don't do works. Um, if a brother or sister poorly clothed and lacking daily food, one of you says to him, go in peace and be warmed and filled without giving him the things that he need for the body, what good is that? So also faith by itself, if it does not have works, is dead. So faith minus works, he calls it dead. So the first counterfeit faith that's given to us here in the Bible is dead faith. You can see it also, he, he, he in 26, I tagged 26 on there because he says, for as apart from the body, the spirit is dead. So also faith apart from works is dead. So we have this idea here or a counterfeit faith, which is dead faith. And that's, I believe, but I don't ever do anything. That's dead faith. And he, this is a counterfeit faith. This is a vain faith. This is a faith where you think you might have a right standing with God because you believe, but because you never actually do anything, there's no works that follow it, then 
It's actually not a saving faith. It's a counterfeit faith. In verse 13, we're told, uh, for judgment is without mercy for one, for one who has shown mercy. Mercy triumphs over judgment. So after we just talked about mercy, we know that since you have mercy, you should do things for people out of mercy. And so he shows us that real faith um, can't be separated from works. It can't be separated from works. Uh, the example that he gives is a man that's hungry or a person that's hungry. If a, a man or woman comes to you, a brother or sister comes to you that's hungry and they're sent away without food, James says that this person that, that does that has a dead faith. And a dead f- faith never produces good works um, because it shows that you actually have really no faith at all. And he says, can that faith save him? And the answer is obviously no, that faith cannot save him. Uh, Dead faith is where you have words, but you don't have deeds. You're full of words, maybe even correct words, but there's no deeds. And that's a dead faith. And the defining characteristic of dead faith, as I said, is you have no good works. Emphasis on works, as in you do no works at all. It's deedless Christianity. Deedless Christianity is dead Christianity. You have to have works that follow. So on the other hand, on the opposite of dead faith, uh, Jesus tells us what the opposite of this dead faith would look like. I'm going to just call it a live faith, just for fun. Uh, a live faith. And he, he tells us what that looks like. Uh, using almost the exact same example as James, uh, he uses, uh, Jesus tells a story in Matthew 25 where he says this. I'm going to start at verse 31. When the Son of Man comes in glory and all the angels with him... He will sit on his glorious throne before him and will be gathered with all the nations and he will separate people one from another as a shepherd separates the sheep from the goats and he will place the sheep on the right but the goats on the left and the king will say to those on his right, come, you who are blessed by my father inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. And here it is. This is people who do not have dead faith but alive faith. Four, I was hungry and you gave me food. I was thirsty and you gave me drink. I was a stranger and you welcomed me. I was naked and you clothed me. I was sick and you visited me. I was in prison and you came to me. Then the righteous will answer him. Those that will go to heaven will say. Now notice, he declares them righteous. They have a right standing. So they have uh, been justified. They'll answer him, Lord, when did we see you hungry and feed you and thirsty and give you drink? And when did we see you a stranger and welcome you or naked and clothe you? And when did we see you sick or in prison and visit you? And the king will answer, truly I say to you, as you did to one of these least of my brothers, you did to me. So uh, something that defines those who are righteous is that they do these good works. And Jesus says, you will do these things. And when you do at the end, you will you will be saved. You will go to heaven. That's what an alive faith looks like. So if we're looking at verses 14 through 17, and we're having that first counterfeit faith, the, the opposite means alive faith. It means be, being willing to obey what we see in James chapter 1, verse 27, uh, 26 and 27, you want to reach out to widows and orphans, or everything that we saw in verses 1 through uh, 13, that you don't show partiality, but instead you want to help all. That's, that's the first counterfeit faith, is dead faith, and the opposite of it, which is alive. Now, we're going to see a second counterfeit faith, and that's in verses 18 and 19. Look at them, verse 18. But someone will say, you have faith and I have works. James replies, show me your faith apart from your works, and I will show you my faith by my works. You believe that God is one. This is the Shema. This is Deuteronomy 6. This is one of the key verses in the Old Testament. This is like, if you believe Deuteronomy 6, then you really, really know God. 
So this is a, 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 a pointing towards a very, very well-known verse in the Old Testament that's like, okay, if you know Deuteronomy 6, believe, hero Israel, the Lord our God is one, then wow, you must be a follower of God. He says, you believe that and you do well. Um, even the demons believe and shudder. So the second, uh, as we're defining faith, counterfeit faith is this, demon faith. And this just means this. When you look at this, James uh, moves a little bit further past counterfeit faiths that aren't pleasing to God. And he said, this is a person that has faith but no works. But this is a person more so that says he intellectually understands the things of God. He, in verse 19, says that God is one. Even the demons believe Deuteronomy 6. As in, they intellectually understand things about God. They know theology. They likely know theology better than anyone in this room. They, they understand the Bible. They just don't love God. But they understand theology. And so if we are the kind of people that, are, uh, that know God but don't know about God, or we're the kind of people that, I'm sorry, let me I'll reverse that, that know about God but don't know God, then we have demon faith. We, we don't know who he is. This is. There's a book out in the lobby by J.I. Packer. It's called Knowing God. It's the whole thing about the difference between knowing about God and knowing God. They're free, by the way, if you want to grab one. Um, now you're all going to, and I got to buy more, but that's fine. Um, uh, that's fine, but there's, there's a key difference between the two. Uh, Al Berry says it this way, affirmation of Christian truth, however central and however orthodox, is not enough. Affirmation, believing or saying, yes, I affirm that to be true of a Christian faith, no matter how central or orthodox, that just means right, is not enough. So just because you know sound doctrine, as in this demon faith, you know, even maybe you say, yeah, the Shema must be true. Deuteronomy 6, I believe that. That is not enough. The demons know these things and they aren't saved. The demons, the devil himself has better theology than we do. How did he tempt Jesus? By misquoting scripture, but he knew scripture, right? And so demon faith cannot save. It's just knowledge of the things of God without love of God, without love of God. There's a vast difference, as I said, about knowing about God and knowing God. And in the, in the end, demon faith, just like dead faith, does not save. It cannot save because as Galatians 5, 6, uh, whenever you do good works, good works, it's your faith working through love. And they don't have, they, their faith is just intellectual assent and certainly is not love. So, um, the key defining characteristic of demon faith is that there is no love. If the key defining characteristic of dead faith is that they don't do good works, the key defining characteristic of demon faith is that they have no love. On the other hand, just like the first one, Jesus, through the apostle Paul, instructs us on the opposite of demon faith as well. And he does this in 1 Corinthians chapter 13. You've heard it either at your wedding or some wedding, but this is what it says. And I'm going to go over it just so you hear it. Uh, the love chapter in 1 Corinthians 13. And don't forget that 1 Corinthians 13, the context, of course, is 12 and 14. And that's just numbers. But on both sides, that's the gifts of God. And so whenever you exercise your gifts, if you don't do it through love, then it's pointless. But here it is. Verse 13. Chapter 13, sorry. If I speak the tongues of men and of angels, but have not love... 
I'm a noisy gong or a clanging cymbal. This is where I feel compelled to go bang the cymbals and tell you how much I love you and ask you if you can hear me. Just imagine how awful that would be. Uh, but you'd be like, I can't hear you. That's, a, that's the point. If, if you are uh, speaking great, but you don't actually love people, then they can't hear you. They just, they, all they hear is the clanging cymbals. If I have prophetic powers and understand all mysteries and all knowledge, and I don't have faith, so as to move mountains, but I don't have love, I'm nothing. If I give away all that I have, and if I deliver my body up to be burned, but I don't have love, I am nothing. Think of that for a second. If I give away all that I have and deliver my body up to be burned, I, 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 my life is a living sacrifice for good works, but I don't actually love, I gain nothing. Love is patient and kind. Love does not envy or boast. It is not arrogant. It is not rude. It does not insist on its own way. It is not irritable. It is not resentful. It does not rejoice at wrongdoing, but rejoices with truth. Love bears all things, believes all things, loves, hopes all things, endures all things. Love never ends. As for prophecies, they'll pass away. As for tongues, they will cease. As for knowledge, it will pass away. For we in part, for we, for we know in part and prophesy in part. But when the perfect comes, I believe that's Jesus, not the Bible. Um, that's a whole other discussion on on that. Anyway, the partial will pass away. Uh, but when I was a child, I spoke like a child. I thought like a child. I reasoned like a child. When I became a man, I gave up childish ways. For now we see in a mirror dimly, but then face to face. For I know in part, then I shall be, but then I shall be fully known, even as I have been fully known. So now faith, hope, and love abide. These three. Think about this. Faith, Hope and love abide. These things, these things. But he says the greatest of faith, hope, and love, the greatest of these is love. The greatest of these is love. And so demon faith does not save. In a church where maybe, maybe more than most, we have a lot of intellectuals. Mere knowledge of correct orthodoxy does not save. We have to have that coupled with not only good works, but love. Deep, abiding, genuine love for God and other people. And if you want to know what that looks like, just go back to 1 Corinthians 13 and read it every day. If you just study verses 1 through 3, that's enough. And then you get to 4 through 8 and it's even more difficult. So that's the second dysfunctional faith or not real one. So the next one is going to be in 20 through 23, the third one. Starting at verse 20. Do you want to be shown, you foolish person, that faith apart from works is useless? That's the key, the key word there would be useless as we go through here. So the third one would be useless faith, but because I wanted it to start with D, I got my thesaurus out and it's going to start with D. All right, so do, do you want to be shown, you foolish person, that faith apart from works is useless? Which is where it gets interesting. Was not Abraham our father justified by works when he offered up his own son Isaac on the altar? You see that faith was active along with his works. And that faith was completed by his works. And the scripture was fulfilled that says, Abraham believed God and it was counted to him as righteousness and he was called a friend of God. Okay, so the third... Uh, Counterfeit faith is useless faith or dysfunctional. And 
Useless is actually a better term, but dysfunctional starts with D. Um, so here's what we mean here. What we mean really is idle. Um, useless as in idle. It's the opposite of what Abraham's faith is being compared. Abraham's faith was active. He was willing to take his son Isaac and do this good work for God. So it's, it's not, it's not uh, active. Instead, it's idle. It's dysfunctional. It's, it's, it's useless. It's not accomplishing. We know that Abraham's faith was completed or made perfect or made evident by his work, by his good work, which is in this particular text, being willing to offer Isaac up. Now, this was, and we're going to talk about this in a second, uh, at least 15 years after Abraham was declared by God to be righteous. And so the offering up of Isaac is not what makes him righteous because 15 years prior, he was declared righteous already. Abraham believed God and it was counted to him as righteousness. Um, James quotes that here, but he points to the work that he does some 15 years later after he's declared righteous. He's pointing to his faith being active, being willing to do something as proof that he was already righteous. And now look how he's righteous because he's doing something. He's active. He's not idle. He's useful. He's not useless. He's willing to go do good works. So he's pointing to something that he's doing. We're going to come to that in a second because that's where it gets a little crazy. Uh, But before we do that, I want you to see here that he has not a useless faith, but useful faith. So the defining characteristic, um, if, if number one, the defining characteristic of dead faith is that uh, he does no good works, emphasis on works. The defining characteristic on useless faith is he does no good works, emphasis on good. He does no good works. He just does bad works. It's useless. Here, he does good works. And here, it's specifically, he's obeying God. God says, offer Isaac up. I'm going to obey you. I don't know, understand it fully. He sees why in the end. But nevertheless, uh, it's doing works that are good that the Lord says, this is giving evidence that you're a Christian. Now, you can be doing some things that you think are good that aren't, in the end, going to save. And they're not going to happen. But here, this is doing good works that clearly show that you have been saved. I'll give you an example of what I mean. Uh, and this is um, the opposite of dysfunctional faith. We'll call it useful faith. Um, and this is where uh, Jesus speaks to us in Matthew chapter 7, where the key thing is that they were lacking faith. They might have been doing good works, but this is what he says to them in verse 21. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but the one who does the will of my Father in heaven. On that day, many will say, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name? Cast out demons in your name. Do mighty good works in your name. And I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. These are, these are good things, but because they don't have faith prior to the, doing these things, they're not good things because they thought that they would save. They weren't counted righteous beforehand. And so um, the opposite of that is useful faith. It's believing in God, having a faith that saves real faith, and then carrying out those good works as evidence of the fact that you have been counted righteous. It's not useless or dysfunctional. It's useful. Now, which brings us to the controversial verse, verse 24. You can see it here. You see that a person is justified by works and not by faith alone. If you spend any time in evangelicalism, you read that and you're like, wait, wait, what? That's where everybody was. That's, you know, what are we in, 2000? 
so 300, so 1,700 years ago, uh, everybody was like, should James be in the Bible? Should James be in the Bible? Um, and even Luther later on, he didn't like it um, in 1,500. So uh, you see that a person is justified by works and not by faith alone. Now, if you're reading that, you're like, you know, I don't get it. Why is that such a big deal? Well, I'm going to put it beside Paul in Romans 3.28 so we can see it. So go ahead and stick it up there so we can, we can read it together and really feel the tension here. James 2.24, you see that a person is justified by works and not by faith alone. For we hold that one is justified by faith apart from works of the law. So you can read that and you're like, okay, that's got to be saying the opposite things. When I read that, it sounds like they're literally saying the opposite things. How is it possible that James and Paul, who were contemporaries of each other, say what seemingly is the opposite thing? Well, I will, uh, in my best here, try to explain how this is not contradicting each other. And the amazing thing is that both quote in their argument, when you go to their argument and look in context, both quote uh, Genesis 15, 6, that Abraham believed God and it was counted to him as righteousness. And they say, they say that. <laughs> and you're like, okay, how's that possible that they're saying the opposite? Let me begin with my core beliefs. So it's important that you know where I am about God and scripture. One, the Bible is inspired by God. Theonoustos, breathed out by God. And so this means that the, it is the word of God to us. It is true. It is coherent. It does not make false statements. It does not contradict itself. So if I see problems, the problem is not God. The problem is me. I don't understand it. It's not that God made a mistake. That's my always beginning point. I am deficient. God is not um, because I am finite and he is not. That's the first thing I start with. The second thing, the scriptures cannot be broken. John 10, 35. Um, Jesus taught us this, that he is to believe and be trusted as the son of man. And the scriptures cannot be broken. Third, as he promises in John 16, 3, the Holy Scriptures promise to lead us into truth. And so in the Bible, it's truth. And it leads us always to truth. When you see stuff like this, there's something that we can understand. I'll, I'll explain. Last one. Uh, 1 Corinthians 14, 33. God is not a God of confusion. He's not a God of confusion. This means that God wants us to understand his word and gave us his Holy Spirit to lead us to truth and understand and not be confused. Um, if you can read the Bible like this and, and, and when you're looking at it, you can say, why does stuff like this happen? Uh, Jonathan Edwards tries to help us understand uh, why we have a lack of apprehension sometimes of understanding the word. He says this, the inspiration of the word of God is like the incarnation of the son of God. When the son of God became a man, a human being, he became vulnerable to abuse and death. When the word of God became human language, which is finite, it also became vulnerable to ambiguity and misunderstanding. And so like the incarnation where the son of man uh, became vulnerable to abuse and death, thus the word of God as it becomes human language also uh, becomes vulnerable to ambiguity and misunderstanding. So that's why those things can happen. Now, let me start with this. If you were to say to Paul and James the phrase justification by works, they would think of two different things. They, their minds would go to two different places. John Piper explains it this way. He says, if you were to ask them, does justification as an ongoing and final right standing with God depend on works of love? So do you have to have works in order to be justified? Paul would say, no. 
if you mean deeds done to show that you deserve God's ongoing blessing. These, these deeds show that I deserve God's ongoing blessing. He's going to say, no, no, no. That's not what it is. Um, that's the point of Romans 4.4. 4. James is going to say yes, but he's going to say, if you mean the fruit or the evidence of faith, like Abraham's obedience on Mount Moriah when he offered up Isaac. Paul is going to say, I agree with James. And James is going to say, I agree with Paul based on his definitions. So they kind of go to two different places to explain what they mean. They're going to say, answer the question differently. But then once they hear each other, they're going to say, well, I, yeah, on, based on his definitions, I agree with him. That's how he explains it. Now you can say, how and, how and why can you say that? How can that be said? And the key is context, 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 when you're looking at it. And let's take a look at the context so that we can understand why Paul and James are not contradicting each other and why the Bible also is not contradicting each other. They both reference Abraham, and for good reason. Abraham is the archetypal man of faith uh, in, in the Old Testament. Uh, both James and Paul also quote Moses, as I said, in the same verse, Genesis 15, 16. And when they look at Abraham, remember, Abraham was counted as righteous in Genesis. The law was given in Exodus. So he wasn't law-keeping, and all of a sudden he's awesome, right? This was, he was counted righteous because he had faith. The law wasn't even given yet. He was a man of faith and God saw his faith and we're the saved the same way, not by law keeping, but by faith. He was faith in the coming Messiah and we're on this side of the cross, faith in the Messiah that came. So we're both saved the same way. Um, we both look towards the cross. Uh, he, we have more understanding of it, of course, because it's happened for us. But nonetheless, Abraham believed God, it's counted to him as righteousness. So they both point to Abraham and that is key. But whenever they point to Abraham, and here's the key difference. This is how we know that they don't contradict each other. Because when they point to Abraham's life, they point to two different points in Abraham's life. And Paul points to one particular place and Abraham points to the other. I've already kind of hinted towards it. And because of that, that helps us understand what they mean when they say justified. So the two different points they, they point to or they reference helps us understand Paul's portrait of justification and James's portrait of justification. And uh, it helps us understand what they mean by justified. So let's, let's look at Paul first. So if you go over to Romans, if you want to flip with me, you can. Uh, but Go over to Romans. I'm going to start at 327. Now, remember, when Paul wrote, there was no chapter division. So for him, 327 rightly goes into 4, uh, down to at least, well, I'm going to go down to at least 4-4. Four, four. So 327. What should become of our boasting? It is excluded by what kind of law? By a law of works? No, but by the law of faith. For we hold, here it is, that one is justified by faith apart from works of the law. Or is God the God of the Jews only? Or is not the God of the Gentiles also? Yes, of the Gentiles also, since God is one. Who will justify the circumcised by faith and the uncircumcised? Who will justify the circumcised by faith and the uncircumcised through faith? Do we then overthrow the law by this faith? By no means. On the contrary, we uphold the law. And now he's going to give us an understanding of Abraham, starting in verse chapter 4. What then shall we say was gained by Abraham, our forefather, according to the flesh? For if Abraham, here it is, was justified by works, he has something to boast about, but not before God. For what does the scripture say? Now he's going to quote Genesis 15, 6 here. Abraham believed God and was 
counted to him as righteousness. So for Paul, justification is that moment where Abraham believed God and he was justified. And you can see, now to the one who works, his wages are counted as a gift, but as his due. And to the one who does not work, but believes in him who justifies the ungodly, his faith is counted as righteousness. His faith is counted as righteousness. So Paul points to Genesis 15, Abraham's faith. Just so you can understand the contrast, not the offering of Isaac, the work, which James points to, but earlier, Paul points to uh, Abraham's faith. And when he does this, he's talking about initial justification. So when he says justification, he's talking about initial justification. This is the declaration of God that one is righteous at the moment of saving faith. And that moment that they're reconciled to God, they're declared righteous in his sight. And this is the inception of the Christian life. This is the beginning of the Christian life. And Paul wants to avoid here thinking that works are necessary in order to be saved. He wants you to make sure you understand faith is necessary in initial justification. In contrast to James, which would be final justification. We're going to get to that. So looking at, Ro- at Romans, uh, Paul unpacks Abraham's righteousness thoroughly in Romans 4. And in Romans 4 and through 5, Paul outright says that Abraham's not saved by his works. And then he quotes Genesis 15, 6 and says that uh, it's because he has uh, put his faith and that's in God. That's what's counted him righteous. And so Romans 4, 5 says the same for us, that the one who does not work but trusts in Christ, that's what counts us as righteous. So when Paul says that we're justified by faith, he means there's no other way to be counted righteous by God except through faith. That's it. And we know that Genesis 15, 6, that Abraham believed God or had faith in God or had faith that was counted to him as righteousness. And Abraham had not ever done a work to receive this righteousness. He had not kept the law because it hadn't even been given. This is at the beginning where God looked at him and saw that he was a man of faith. He believed God. It was counted as righteous. And that's the initial justification that happens. And Paul points to that as saying, look, he's justified. He has faith. James does something different. So if you look at James, we've already read it. Um, James, in his portrait of justification, does not talk about initial justification, but instead final justification. He points to Genesis chapter 22. Abraham's work of being willing to sacrifice Isaac, showing that he's righteous. So he was already in Genesis 15, 6, which Paul says, declared righteous. But later on, whenever he's willing to sacrifice Isaac, James points to that, the work itself, and says, see, he's righteous. Look at it again with me. Um, Verse 21, was not Abraham our father justified by works or shown by his works when he offered up Isaac on the altar? And so since he does not point to something that happened 15 years earlier, the declaration of righteousness, but instead the work, he means something different than Paul. Because he points at Genesis 22 whenever uh, he offers Isaac. And he says, Was not Abraham our father justified works when he offered up his son Isaac on the altar? You see that faith was active. That's the key for him. Along with his works. And faith was completed by his works. And so for James, without works, there is no faith. And he's just sticking to making sure you understand as somebody that has been counted righteous in God, you have to actually do something. And so he doesn't point to uh, the declaration of God in Genesis 15 because he already believes that. He wants you to know Genesis 22. Look, Abraham's actually doing something, showing that he trusts God, showing that he believes God because he's obeying and doing stuff. He's pointing at uh, action. 
And so for him, justification is final justification, referring to what will happen on the day of judgment when God declares us right in his sight. It's demonstrating a truth of prior claim of the initial justification, and it's also confirming that that's happened because of good works all the way through your life. And so James wants to avoid, if Paul wants to avoid thinking that works are necessary to be saved, James wants to avoid that works are not necessary to give evidence of being saved. Or to say it easier, James wants you to know you have to have good works to give evidence that you're really saved. Without, without good works, there's no evidence. Good works don't earn, they give evidence. If you have to think of ease for mnemonic devices, good works don't earn, they give evidence. And that's what James means here. He's pointing us to help us understand that good works give evidence to what's already happened. So that's how Paul and James are different, how we know that they actually have different words because Paul points to Genesis 15, James points to Genesis 22. Paul points to the declaration of righteousness, James points to the good work because of the declaration of righteousness, proving that he was that. They think differently. It doesn't mean that they're in contradiction with each other. Paul's key was, he lived his life, I mean, over and over to help everybody see it's by faith alone, not by works. And James was like, of course that, and you gotta do something. They had different personalities. I said from the beginning, James is a pull it from the hip, shoot it to you, tell you just like it is kind of guy. You got to do good works. So he's assuming that you've already put your faith in Christ and wanting to make sure that you're doing something. That's the difference. And of course, Paul wants you to do something. It's not like Paul's like, ah, I don't do anything. That's not Paul, right? But th- when, they, when they write, they have different uh, streams of thought. They have uh, different emphasis that they're wanting to go over. So uh, James means that those who profess they have faith Prove the reality of their faith by doing good works. The good works don't save, as I said, but give evidence of what's already happened, which is why uh, he quotes Genesis 22. And so um, he also, in verse 25, quotes or gives Rahab as an example, which is basically the same as Abraham. She believed God, she trusted God, she knew that God could do things, and therefore she did works that obeyed God afterwards. And so um, Rahab's example in verse 25 is the exact same thing as Abraham. All right, which brings us to our fourth one. If we're defining faith, we've seen three counterfeit faiths. Now let's talk about real faith. Go to number four, real faith. And if you need a verse, it's the book of James. Um, If you need a D, you can put demonstrable faith. I think that that kind of fits it, but I didn't put that on the screen because I didn't really like it. Um, So this faith is the faith that has been counted as righteous. Um, Therefore, as a follower of Jesus, we understand that we must do good works. Because we've been declared righteous, this is what real faith is. We know that we must do good works. We feel compelled and we want to and we have to do good works. uh, And we know that doing these good works does not earn a right standing with Jesus. Instead, we know that it gives evidence that we've already been forgiven. We've already been... uh, We've already been counted as righteous by God because we put our faith in Christ. We believe that he died on the cross for us. We've been forgiven of all of our sin. And now because of that, we can never get over that. We want to be worshipers. We want to have a live faith, people that serve the poor and needy. We want to have loving faith, a genuine deep love for Jesus and other people. I'm just, I'm just saying the opposites of those first three counterfeit faiths. We want to have a live faith, not dead, um, because we love to care for the poor and needy. We want to have loving faith that really loves God and other people. And we're not just doing it because we think that we're getting points with God, 
we really love God. We also want to have useful or active faith, as in there's real value and real action to this faith. We're not just sitting around doing nothing. It's real, active faith. It's alive, it's loving, and it's useful because that's the faith that saves. That's real, demonstrable faith. So the conclusion for us is this, as we look at this text to finish it up. Um, the warning at the very beginning is that we all can have a, a belief that we really, we really are Christ followers, that we really are saved as he says, there's a genuine frightening truth that should give us pause. It's possible to claim and believe that you possess genuine saving faith when in fact we do not. It's possible to believe you have things sorted out with God, that you will not face his judgment, and that there's hope for us beyond the grave, and yet remain under the judgment of God. It's possible unknowingly to possess counterfeit faith. And so examine your life. Look at it and see, do I have real faith or do I have dead faith? Do I have faith where I just only believe but don't ever do anything? Look at your faith and see if you have demon faith. Are you just relying on orthodoxy? I know plenty of theology. I read Grudem and the Bible every day, so I'm a Christian. Or dysfunctional faith, basically just useless instead of useful. Look at those things. And James is going to emphasize for you you must have good works. They do not save, or you could boast. But examine your life, examine your heart, examine the pattern of the way you live. And are you, uh, are you someone who has been declared righteous by God? And because of that, because of being forgiven of all your sin, you have such a deep abiding love for God and his people that you cannot help but serve the poor and needy. You cannot help but want to do good works. You cannot help but want to kill sin. You cannot help but want to continue doing good works. Have real faith in Christ. Let's pray. Lord, we, uh, we thank you for your word. We, uh, we know your word's difficult and, um, in some places, and we thank you that you've given us the Holy Spirit to help us understand uh, your word. And I pray that as we've looked at uh, James chapter 2 today, that not just uh, the difficulty between he and Paul and understanding that, that that would have happened, certainly, Lord, but not just that, but more than that, we would examine our lives and examine our faith, and God, that we would see that we are uh, either in counterfeit faith or real faith, that we were in vain faith or genuine faith, and that we would do the real work of examining our hearts and if we have a counterfeit, false, vain faith, that we would repent of that and that we would put our hope solely in Jesus and then after that, live a life that gives evidence that we are truly Christ's. I pray for all my friends here, my brothers and sisters in Christ, and for those that might not know you, that they would do this real work of examining their heart. And if they, as they do that, see that Jesus might have been talking to them in Matthew chapter 7, verses 21 through 23, when they say, Lord, Lord, didn't we do all these things in a way from me, you workers of lawlessness? I never knew you. Lord, that, that would give them great pause, and they would say, Lord, I don't want that to be said to me. And that they would put their trust and faith in Jesus Christ, that they would be declared righteous 
and now begin to live a life of good works, giving evidence that you are their king. We love you and we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.